Despite all of their differences, the extreme right and the extreme left are in agreement about one thing. Their hatred for liberalism. Socialist and fascist critics alike decry liberalism as an empty, unprincipled philosophy of faux moderation, peddled by the bourgeoisie and big business to serve their own selfish ends. But this could not be further from the truth. During the 18th and 19th centuries, advocates of liberalism led the charge against autocratic and theocratic governments across the globe. The example of the American and French Revolution inspired countless men and women to fight for freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the separation of church and state, and the civil liberties that many of us today consider the default state of affairs. However, we only enjoy these rights today thanks to the struggles of those who fought, not just for their freedom, but for the freedom of unborn millions to come. One of the many liberal-minded people who fought for a better world during the Age of Revolutions was José Rizal. Through his heartfelt writing, the polymath and polyglot inspired the budding nation of the Philippines to rise against their colonial oppressors. Though he died at the age of 35, during his life, José was a doctor, a painter, a sculptor, an educator, a historian, a playwright, and a journalist. His interests were varied and numerous, including architecture, cartography, economics, fencing, sleight-of-hand tricks, portraiture, anthropology, and a whole bunch more. If that wasn't enough, he was also fluent in 22 languages, including Spanish, French, English, Greek, Malay, Japanese, Dutch, German, Italian, and even Arabic. He sounds like some sort of long-running comic book character with an endless list of powers, but he was human. He simply squeezed every drop out of life while he was alive. Despite sounding like the most eccentric gentleman of the 19th century, besides people who grew up in the Philippines and who were mandated to read about José Rizal in school, José remains an obscure name for most Westerners. Even his considerable achievements of inspiring the first anti-colonial revolution in Asia following in the footsteps of the American and French revolutions, in classical liberal and libertarian circles, José remains oddly obscure. But I believe that there is great value in knowing and appreciating the life of José Rizal. Today, post-colonial academics and thinkers often blame liberalism for the imperialism and colonial oppression unleashed by Western nations. But, as the scholar Pascal Bruckner rightly points out, there is no doubt that Europe has given birth to monsters. But at the same time, it has given birth to the theories that make it possible to understand and destroy these monsters. In fact, one of the greatest weapons against these monsters has been liberalism. Yes, the West created the colonial government that oppressed the Philippines, but people like Jose took the ideas and principles from the West to combat their oppressors. However, Jose did not simply copy and paste Western ideas. He applied them to a uniquely colonial context, and came to profound conclusions on the nature of liberty and our responsibility to protect it at all costs. Jose Rizal was born on June 19, 1861, to a well-off sugarcane planter family in the town of Calamba, located in the province of Laguana, nearby the capital of the Philippines, Manila. Young Jose had nine sisters and one brother. From an early age, it was evident that Jose had an insatiable appetite for knowledge. By the age of three, he had learned the alphabet from his mother and could read and write by the age of five. At first, he was educated by his mother, a Filipino tradition. As Jose aged, a family friend, Leon Monroy, took over his education, tutoring him in reading and writing in Tagalog, the primary language of the Philippines, as well as Latin and Spanish. Upon Monroy's death, Jose was sent to a private Latin school in Binan. However, it was quickly apparent that the young Jose was well ahead of the curriculum. He was a gifted young boy born into a privileged family. 
but this did not make his childhood carefree by any means. In 1871, before starting his high school education, his mother was falsely accused of a crime she did not commit. Jose's uncle was having marriage trouble with his unfaithful wife. In an attempt to reconcile the two, Jose's mother invited the pair to the family home to hash out their issues. However, the unfaithful wife, collaborating with a local Spanish constable with grievances against Jose's family, accused his mother of attempting to poison them. As a result, Jose's mother was imprisoned for two years, till she was eventually exonerated by the Supreme Court and freed in 1873, only after humiliating treatment while imprisoned. Later, Jose described the whole debacle as too unpleasant and heartbreaking for him to ever forget. The Spanish colonial government in the Philippines was rife with corruption, and seemingly every family had some sort of terrible story of injustice similar to Jose's. The Spanish began to colonize the Philippines all the way back in 1565. In fact, the archipelago derives its name from King Philip II. Through a strategy of divide and conquer, the Spanish eventually consolidated control of the isolated populations of the Philippines and brought them under unified Spanish rule. Since 1565, the Philippines have been governed from Mexico, then part of the Spanish Empire. But after Spain officially recognized Mexican independence in 1821, the governing of the Philippines was passed off to Madrid. Before the 19th century, the Philippines under Spanish rule had been an isolated archipelago. Foreign merchants were not permitted to travel to the Philippines or engage in any form of trade or business. But by 1814, the Spanish government abandoned their mercantilism for a more laissez-faire approach. Colonial ports were open to foreign trade, and foreigners were allowed to enter and engage in business for the first time. By 1834, the port of Melilla was open to foreign business, and by 1858, 15 foreign firms had quickly established themselves in the capital city. Most importantly, in 1869, the Suez Canal was opened. Formerly, a trip from Barcelona to Manila would take anywhere from three to six months, but now it took a mere 30 or so days. The formerly isolated Philippines was becoming a wealthier and more cosmopolitan place thanks to the export of agricultural produce including coffee and tobacco and the influx of foreign trade. And with trade came the exchange of ideas. By the 19th century, Spain was becoming increasingly liberal, influenced by the ideals of the French Revolution. In 1868, a military revolution overthrown the reign of Isabella II, and a constitution was promulgated by the Spanish government. Though the constitution did not apply to the Philippines, it emboldened the Filipinos to advocate for equal rights alongside their Spanish counterparts. In 1869, Governor General Carlos Maria de la Torre arrived in the Philippines with an energetic approach to reform, relaxing press censorship. La Torre was widely applauded by those eager for change. However, political jockeying back in Spain caused La Torre to be dismissed and replaced with a more reactionary governor. Though in La Torre's brief tenure, very little had actually changed, it gave the Philippines a taste of a fairer and freer government. Despite an increasingly liberal government in Spain and the establishment of free trade in the Philippines, there was a major roadblock to any meaningful legal reform in the Philippines. The Spanish religious orders known as friars. As Spain became more liberal and at times more anti-clerical, disaffected and reactionary friars fled their home country to the Philippines to re-establish the religious and socio-economic status they had once maintained in Spain. In the Philippines, the friars held immense political and economic power. In Jose's home province, for example, friars owned 40% of all the land, including the Rizal family estate. Local Filipino priests were given the poorest and most desolate provinces to administer, while the most prosperous were left for Spanish friars. In many ways, the reactionary friars, fleeing from an increasingly modern Spain, wished to turn back the clock and live as they had a century ago. Even when the Spanish government sent reformists to take positions in the colonial bureaucracy, without the support of the friars, they were really incapable of governing. 
and the friars would not support anyone who threatened their lucrative position. Later in life, Jose would condemn the corrupt friars as a personification of everything he hated. Mean, egoist, tyrant, oppressor, enemy of all progress, and lover of everything futile. In 1872, troops in the province of Cavite attempted a mutiny, protesting against the new governor-general who increased taxes. The uprising was swiftly put down, but was then used as a pretext to arrest all known liberals and reformers, regardless of their involvement with the mutiny. As a young boy, Jose witnessed the public garroting of three priests, one of whom, Jose Burgos, was a close friend of Jose's older brother, Paquino. Though only a boy, the events of 1872 awakened Jose. He later wrote that he swore to devote myself to avenge one day so many victims. And with this idea in mind, I have been studying, and this can be read in all my works and writings. As the government became increasingly oppressive, Jose began to attend the Jesuit-run school at Teno Municipal, one of the most esteemed schools in the colony. The Jesuit curriculum suited Jose's broad taste perfectly. He was trained in Latin, Greek, Spanish, rhetoric, history, religion, philosophy, and mathematics. But not all learning was in the classroom. There was also lessons in fencing, music, drawing, sculpture, and painting. Though the Jesuits were a strict lot, they also really appreciated the energy and curiosity of youth, leading Jose to develop an affection for the Jesuits even later in life when he moved away from organized religion. When he graduated in 1877, he graduated with the highest honors possible. Jose then advanced to the University of Santo Tomas, one of the oldest colleges in East Asia, run by the Dominican friars. Though he initially studied arts, after his mother's eyesight degraded so much so that she could no longer recognize Jose, he decided to study medicine, specializing specifically in eyes to help treat his mother. But while at school, Jose had no love for the Dominican friars who ran the college. He believed they were smug and condescending. One day while attending college, he walked past a Spanish lieutenant without saluting. In response, the lieutenant knocked him down and attacked him. The aggrieved Jose travels to the palace of the governor-general, believing that he was unfairly attacked. Like many native Filipinos, Jose was denied even an audience. During this same period, the Dominican friars who rented out the land to Jose's father began to increase the rent until it was double its original cost. With the friars' stranglehold on land ownership and their influence in legal decisions, there was really nothing the family could do but grin and bear the cost. Jose would later write that, in university, I got to understand better in what sort of world I was in. In it, there were privileges for some and rules for others. Increasingly unhappy with the impressive environment, not only of his education, but the nation as a whole, Jose decided it was time to leave. His brother helped arrange to continue studying medicine in Spain. In 1882, Jose departed from Manila aboard a steamship. En route to Spain, he stopped at Singapore, Sri Lanka, Somalia, Yemen, and Naples eventually completing his journey in Madrid. After three years of studying, he was awarded two licenses, one in medicine and another in philosophy and letters. Though a dedicated student of medicine, he always made sure that he found time for his love of literature and the arts. He received numerous awards for artistic merit and academic writing. After graduating in 1885, Jose traveled to Germany to pursue studies in law. While traveling, he stopped in Barcelona and Paris, where he learned to speak German, French and English, while assisting in ophthalmological office. When Jose arrived in Heidelberg, he met one of his greatest companions, Dr. Ferdinand Blumentritt, an Austrian Orientalist. The pair became firm friends, with Blumentritt helping guide Jose's readings in history, anthropology, and linguistics, while also introducing Jose to a myriad of academics interested in the Philippines. 
While in Spain, Jose suggested to fellow Filipino expatriates to write a communal work discussing the current state of the Philippines to help raise awareness of the country's colonial oppression. Sadly, like many group projects, there were a few takers and it fell through. But, after reading Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, Jose was inspired to write a similar work, one which would portray the suffering of his people and hopefully spur conversations about reform. First and foremost, Jose wished to show that the Filipinos were not uncivilized savages. They were educated and dignified people where they the rights all people deserve. By 1887, Jose had completed his novel, No Le Me Tagore, or in English, Touch Me Not. The story follows the character of Ibarra, a wealthy educated Filipino who returns to his homeland after studying and traveling across Europe. While the plot is fabricated, yes, much of the story takes inspiration from real-life stories of injustice that unfold on a near daily basis due to the corruption maintained by the friars. Literary critics tend to disapprove of Jose's long and sometimes ham-fisted political speeches and sermons crammed into characters' mouths. However, Noli is not only about politics, but culture and mores and the aspirations of the Filipino people, something of which most Europeans, besides a few specialists, would have really no awareness of. Jose succeeded in both identifying the social cancers that plagued the Philippines, while also writing a love letter to his homeland that he missed so dearly and wanted to be free. Jose explained that Noli was written for his country and to arouse the feelings of his countrymen. While it contains no programmatic political plan, it merely outlines the problems facing the Philippines, leaving the reader to tackle the issue themselves. Upon its publishing in Berlin, the novel was immediately branded as subversive by the Spanish colonial government. Though censors tried their best, copies were smuggled into the Philippines. And of course, the colonial friars hated the book, with one report from Jose's former university, Santo Tomas, condemning it as heretical, impious, and scandalous in the religious order, subversive of public order, offensive to the government of Spain and to its method of procedure in these islands of political order. Anyone found possessing a copy was to be immediately jailed. Noli, being written in Spanish, could only really be read by a small portion of the Filipino population, but the friars' disdain brought Jose's subversive novel to people's attention. Censorship never really works in the end. After publishing Noli in 1887, Jose returned to his hometown in the Philippines, where he performed surgery on his mother's cataracts, restoring her eyesight again. Though he intended to live in peace, his novel had caused such a controversy that Jose received a constant stream of threats, and after six months, he was yet again forced to leave his oppressed homeland. Shortly after he left, government officials began to target his family, confiscating their lands, and even deporting one of his brothers-in-law. Jose then travelled to Hong Kong, then to Japan, and eventually to America. He subsequently settled in England from 1888 to 1889, where he began to write prolifically for the Spanish newspaper La Solidaridad, a paper committed to enlightenment principles and progress, in which he presented the sufferings of the Filipino people to Spanish legislators in the hope that they reform the broken and corrupt government of the Philippines. La Solidaridad's stated goal was to combat all reaction and all backward steps, to applaud and accept every liberal idea, to defend progress. Throughout his numerous articles, Jose championed individual rights, freedom of assembly and speech, and the rule of law. However, events at home were starting to make Jose question whether papers like this could really make concrete changes. As long as the friars persisted, any liberal efforts at reform would be quickly subverted and derailed. He began to ponder the efficacy of educated expatriates' advocacies. He argued that the best medicine should ideally be brought near the patient, not far away. Confiding to his close friend Blumentritt, through his letters, Jose pondered returning home to sacrifice himself for his country. In 1891, Jose published his sequel to Nole Metangere, El Filibusterimo, or Fili for short. In English, it means the subversive. 
The story follows Ibarra's plans to mount a revolution against the Spanish government by encouraging the corruption and oppression he opposes in the hopes that it would accelerate the government's downfall and to achieve revenge in the process. Feely is definitely not a book that valorizes or romances revolution. Instead, Jose seeks in the manner of Socratic dialogue to discuss how people can earn their liberty and independence. After all, Jose had observed in South America that a revolution can result in independence for a nation, but not liberty for its people, and Jose wanted both. The character Obara, consumed by hatred and vengeance, ultimately fails, and as he dies, a Filipino priest, Father Florentino, undoubtedly based on the former Jesuit teachers, explains to Obara why his revolution failed, saying, The glory of saving a country doesn't mean having to use the measures that contributed to its ruin. You have believed that what crime and iniquity have stained and deformed another crime and another iniquity can purify and redeem. That's wrong. Hatred creates nothing but monsters. Only love can bring about wondrous things. Only virtue is redemptive. No, if someday our country can be free, it will not be by vice and crime, not by corruption of our children, by cheating some and buying others. Redemption supposes virtue, sacrifice, and sacrifice, love. Florentino concludes that the just and worthy have to suffer in order to spread their ideals let them be known. While Jose increasingly saw the writing on the wall of a possible necessity of revolution, violence is something he feared deeply. He believed that the experience of pain does not justify a revolution, but he passionately believed in a positive vision of what will replace the pain for the populace. The Philippines being a multiracial society, Jose did not want a nationalism based on blood or race, but in the same vein of the American founding fathers, a nationalism based on adherence to a liberal creed of rights, freedom and independence. What Jose ultimately wanted wasn't really reform or revolution, but a republic that would stand the test of time. However, that was achieved. After publishing El Filibusterimo, Jose left Europe and traveled to Hong Kong, where he practiced medicine while living with his family, who, like many Filipinos, had found a comfortable place of exile in Hong Kong. Jose continued to write about the Filipino cause, writing pamphlets and even translating the French Declaration of the Rights of Man. The newly appointed Governor-General of the Philippines yet again promised reforms, and hoping for the best, Jose wrote to the Governor-General, explaining his intentions to return to the Philippines. Jose returned in June 1892, and quickly established the Liga Filipina, a peaceful movement for Filipino independence. Though the movement was peaceful, Jose was arrested one week later without trial, for the offence of publishing books, articles and pamphlets that criticised the Catholic Church and the Spanish government. He was to be deported. The Liga Filipina was to be disbanded after his arrest, but an admirer of Jose, Andres Bonifacio, gathered fellow supporters to establish the Catipunan, a secret revolutionary group dedicated to overthrowing the Spanish colonial government. In the meantime, Jose Rizal was exiled to a small town in the northwest known as Dapitan. Knowing political agitation would bring reprisals on his poor family, Jose dedicated himself to establishing a small medical practice and a school, even teaching them some locals how to carve and sculpt in his spare time. The Spanish government hoped that, without a voice, Jose would simply fade into obscurity, but his efforts at improving the lives of those around him only bolstered his reputation further. Even still, he began to tire of living in a poor rural town. Jose never made any attempts to escape, even though he could easily slip away at night. Though isolated in Dapitan, his lifelong friend, Blumentritt, kept Jose in touch with the various academics and professors he'd encountered across Europe. The letters Jose received would often exhaust censors who had to constantly translate letters from Dutch, French, German, and English. As Andres Bonifacio prepared for his upcoming revolution, he sent an emissary to Jose seeking his guidance and hopefully his support. Jose argued that the Catipunan had limited financial power and military resources. He advised that Andres kept three main points in mind for his revolution. Firstly, collect as many weapons as possible. Secondly, 
He advised that he made sure that the wealthy Filipinos aligned themselves with the revolution, as they could potentially be powerful allies to the colonial government if they didn't side with them. Thirdly, if the revolutionaries' plans were discovered, start the revolution immediately. After four years in Dapitan, in 1885, Jose sent a to the Governor-General, offering up his skill as a doctor for military service in Cuba. The Governor happened to invite him along as a medical officer, and as Jose boarded a boat heading towards Cuba, the Capunan's plans were uncovered and the revolution began. When his ship reached Barcelona, Jose was arrested and brought back to Manila. For the entire voyage, Jose was left unchained and no one laid a single finger on him. Though again, he had many chances to escape, very similar to Socrates, who had faced his trial and refused to run and hide. Tried before a court-martial, Jose was convicted on charges of rebellion, sedition, and conspiracy. He was sentenced to death, a punishment for which no doubt the friars gleefully advocated. Jose was to be executed by a firing squad of Filipino soldiers in the Spanish army, and behind them was a group of Spanish soldiers ordered to shoot any of the executioners who failed to obey their orders. Jose was executed on December 30th, 1896. Jose had already spent years contemplating sacrificing his life for his country, and he faced death with an almost Christ-like composure. He knew that although it was his end, from his death something new would begin. Before his death, he sent a letter to his dear friend Blumentritt, along with the book he bound himself. Upon receiving the letter and personally bound book, Blumentritt could not hold his tears back from the news. Besides the most corrupt friars, the premature death of the lovable Jose, who had charmed and inspired countless people across Europe, Asia, and the Americas, was received with heavy hearts. Though he took no part in the coming revolution, Jose's books, his articles, and most importantly, his personal example, inspired countless Filipinos to take up arms for the cause of independence. As cheesy as all the old sayings are, often the pen is mightier than the sword, and Jose proved that. Ideas backed by both passion and principle could overcome the fear of brute force. Often idealists in writing fail to live up to their principles in reality, but Jose did not fear death. He freed a world where freedom was not realized for all. Sadly today, the Philippines is ruled over by a murderous demagogue, Duarte, who said himself, if it concerns human rights, I don't give a shit. I could say the Philippines is long overdue to revive the liberal thoughts and sentiments of Jose Rizal, but to be frank, in the current political climate, liberalism is under siege from all sides. Alt-writers, socialists, Catholic integralists, and populists from across the globe are doing their damnness to attack liberalism, a philosophical movement that, while not without its faults and sins, has created generally a more freer and prosperous world. In Jose's novel, Noli Me Tangere, a wise man says to Ibarra, After the storm is unleashed, perhaps some grain will germinate and survive the catastrophe, save the species from annihilation, and serve thereafter as a seed for the children to sow later. Though the reputation of liberalism may be in ruins at times, it is never too late to plant the seeds for a freer future. Thanks Mo for listening. Portraits of Liberty is produced by Landry Aries and written by me, Paul Meany. If you like the show, make sure to review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to see more content like this, check out the website libertarism.org.